Welcome to Mount Olive, uh, those of you that are online, listening, podcasts, those in the chapel, those of you here in the sanctuary, so glad that you joined us today. Uh, we've been going through a series, if you're brand new with us, we've been going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached, preached by Jesus. And uh, we started this series back in January, which it's April, it's a long series. And I figured, you know, given that it's such a long sermon Jesus spoke, that uh, we'd take an intermission and do something a little different for the next couple weeks. And some of you are thinking, Elvin, some of your sermons need an intermission, right? Like a little popcorn and pop and maybe, you know, an easy out the back door. But uh, we're not doing any intermissions in my sermons ever, okay? So, uh, but we're going to do one around the Sermon on the Mount. So over the next couple weeks, we're going to dive into a series we've titled Designer Series. Designer Series. And we're going to look at the topic of sexuality, Male and female. Now, uh, as you know, over the last 20 years, the topic of sexuality has become uh, heightened and it's all over our culture. Um, Our understanding as a culture of sexuality has shifted, expanded, changed, um, all of those things. Uh, And our world is changing very quickly as it relates to our understanding of gender and uh, sexuality. In fact, uh, some data that came out from Trans Can, uh, Trans uh, Youth Can, uh, shows that in 2004, uh, there were some maybe 20 uh, transgender teens that were referred to uh, uh, clinics um, uh, and, and so on. As of 2016, it was nearly 1,100 transgender teens. And as you see, the graph of what they've put together um, from 2014 to 2015 and from 2015 to 2016, the numbers doubled year after year. This is exponential growth uh, as it relates to uh, our wrestle and struggle is what it means to be uh, bodies, sexed bodies, and the gender uh, that we express ourselves in. You know, our world is changing quickly. And what used to be understood when it came to sexuality and gender, that there was male and female, uh, just isn't the reality in our culture today. Today, uh, gender is seen more as a a spectrum, uh, as uh, something that's fluid and continues to change and and you can experience and uh, live into. Uh, It's quite a changing culture. And uh, whether you think it's good, whether you think it's bad, or whether you think it's indifferent, I think we can probably agree that the world around us has changed a great deal over the last, well, uh, over the last number of years. So over the next few weeks, we want to dive into uh, this topic of sexuality. Uh, A couple things that haven't changed before we dive in. A couple things that haven't changed. Struggle has not changed. Uh, People have struggled with identifying their uh, sexuality, uh, their gender as their sex bodies for uh, many, many years. This goes back to history. This isn't new. Although it's been heightened in our culture and our day-to-day, it goes back uh, to ancient times. And so this isn't new. The internal struggle uh, is not new. And and so for those of you that maybe you feel uh, that internal struggle, I just want to say that uh, I, I... I want to say as your pastor or as a pastor who you're listening to that I value you, that you are seen, that you are heard, and more importantly, that you have a heavenly father. And you may not even agree with me that you have a heavenly father, but I'm telling you, you have a heavenly father who loves, loves, loves you. 
and in your internal struggle where there is this dissonance and tension between your body and your biological sex and what you feel your gender is, that you are seen by your heavenly father and loved and that you can struggle in his presence. In fact, there's room in the kingdom for you to struggle uh, that out uh, with, uh, within community, within the church, but within the kingdom of God. Uh, but the struggle is not only internal, there's also an external struggle, and this continues. And, that, and what I refer to the external struggle, I mean there uh, continues to be hate, misunderstanding, and discrimination for those who struggle with gender and sexuality. And so this is the external struggle, and we're going to talk about all of that in this series. Now, I do want to say this is a two-part series. Uh, if I had made it one message, you'd be here way too long and you'd be like voting for intermissions. And so I've, I've put this over two, and so you have to come back next week. Today's going to be quite technical and a little less heartfelt um, as we navigate this discussion, but I encourage you to come back next week. Questions you still have hopefully will be answered uh, next week. So let's dive in. But before we do, a couple things I want to mention. First of all, this is a controversial topic. Um, it is quite controversial, uh, which means that there's a good chance you will disagree with me. And what I want to invite you in, I want to invite you into the dialogue uh, that we have together. I plan and tr I will do my best to be both truthful as I see scripture teaches, but also full of grace. And if you want to uh, dive into the dialogue, I invite you to do that. But if you're here simply to, you know, um, pick apart and twist words and use them against, then um, just shut it off, shut off the TV, um, go listen to someone else. I just want to encourage you to do that. This is a, a dialogue, something that we wrestle and struggle through together as a body. Uh, secondly, I want to mention is I'm not an expert on this, which isn't a surprise to you because most every Sunday you realize I'm not the expert on that either. And so uh, that's not a surprise to you, but what I want to say is there's a lot that goes into this conversation on sexuality, including theology, the study of God, including psychology, including biology, and I'm not an expert on all that, but I want to uh, point you to a, a resource that's on on our website, uh, tied to this series, and it's centerforfaith.com with Preston Sprinkle. Much of my research came from, uh, was influenced by Preston and some of the work he's done, and he is just so filled, and his uh, way he uh, navigates this is so filled with grace and truth, and I want to uh, just point you in that direction as well. And then thirdly, I want to say this, what you believe does not change your value, and I want you to hear this. If you believe something different than what I'm going to portray, what I think scripture tells us, and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, and you're like, I just don't believe what you believe, I want to tell you right now, your value is not tied to what you believe or think on this issue. That if you struggle with, with uh, uh, gender dysphoria, and, and uh, that your value does not change. As I said earlier, you have a heavenly father who sees you, and he loves you, and he knows you. The you that you're still trying to figure out who you really are. He knows you. So I just want to say your value does not change. Okay, so let's dive in. Well, to dive in, and this is going to be a, a, a biblical perspective of sexuality, okay? So to get a biblical perspective, to understand how do Christians navigate the shifting you know, sands of this whole sexuality movement, um, we're going to have to look at Scripture, um, before we look at scripture, though, I want to say this about God's word, because God's word never changes. And so here's the, the kind of background assumption I'm making as it comes to God's word, that God's word gets to inform us. We don't get to inform it, which means as cultures change, 
Our understanding of sexuality may change because cultures change, but what does not change is God's word. And when it comes to the change in culture, that God's word as followers of Jesus, we just kind of agree that God's word gets the final say, even if I kind of think differently. And already, we disagree, right? So we haven't even got to sexuality, and some of you are like, I don't agree with that, okay? But this is the perspective that I'm gonna be teaching this from, okay? That God's word gets to inform us rather than we get to inform God's word. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter one, because to find out what scripture teaches on sexuality, we have to go to the very beginning to how God created us, how God designed us. And uh, you can read Genesis chapter one, the entire chapter later, but Genesis chapter one is the creation account. And there's this interesting thing that happens. God creates the world, the universe. He creates it in six segments or six days. And after every day of creation, other than the first two, and I'm not sure why the writer did this, but other than the first two, after every day of creation, after God creates, we have this phrase, this line that shows up, and it says this, and God saw that it was good. You know, he creates something, and after that day, he's like, ah, that's really good. And then he creates something the next day, and and the writer says, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. He does this after every day. In fact, on the sixth day, the last day of creation, God creates the creatures, the animals on the earth, and then he says this exact, the, the writer says this exact same, and God saw that it was good, which is kind of like the end of creation for that day, except for on day six. After God sees that it's good, He doesn't stop creating. On day six, he creates again, and he creates something unique, and he creates something special. He creates humanity. He creates us, in essence. And then the writer says this, and God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. I don't know if you caught the difference, But after every day of creation, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then all of a sudden after day six, he creates animals. He's like, that's good. And then he keeps creating this unique, this new thing. And then he says, whoa, 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 something's changed. Now it's not just good, it's very good. Now, why does he change this? Why does the author change this? Well, it could be two reasons or maybe more than two, but at least two. One might be that God saw all that he made, right? It's like, oh, the culmination of all of this, it's like, man, that was good, that was good, that was, but we put it together, that is very good. Possibly, that's what God is, uh, the writer is referring to. But I think most probably, it's actually something else. I think what God creates after he created the animals on day six and said it was good, that whatever he created, the, the humanity he created after that is what took creation from good to very good. And the reason I think this actually comes partly from the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, Pastor Kenton, in Matthew chapter six, Jesus talks about don't worry, and then Jesus talks about the birds in the air, and he says, are you not much more valuable than they? See, Jesus says, as humans, as humanity, there is something unique, something epic, something special about you. Think about that. Your heavenly father says about you, there's something special out of all creation. It's like you're above it all. He looks at you and says that about you. It's very good. He says something about you that probably at different times in your life, you've not said about you. That you are very good. He created you as uh, as humanity as very 
Good. So what is it about the creation of us that kind of is different than the rest of all creation? Well, go back a couple verses to verse 26, and we find the account of the creation of, well, humanity. And this is what it says. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. This is the other reason why we are different than all creation. This is the only time God says this. I'm going to make someone that is like an, a, a, an image bearer of me. I'm going to make someone who, who is in my likeness. Think about that. You are the image, the image bearers of God himself. You're unique. You're special. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be an image bearer? How are we unique and how are we different? Well, to understand that, we kind of need to understand who God is, don't we? And there's a little uh, uh, hint at who God is right in this passage. And that is, then God said, let us in our, which is a little confusing because God is one being, right? He is in essence one. As Christians, we don't think we serve the gods. I mean, other faiths might have gods, but we serve God, one God. But when God says, I'm going to create, he uses a plural term, let us. What is God referring to? What, what do we learn about God in this? Well, this points to a Christian doctrine, which is teaching about God, that's kind of hard for us to understand. But it's called the Trinity. That God is one and yet he's three persons. That God is in one essence, and yet in three distinct persons. That God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, but we do not serve three gods. We serve one God who is of one essence, but three distinct persons within the Trinity. And that tells us some things about God. One, it tells us that although God is of one essence, that there is this sameness to God, there's also this distinction within God. And that although God, uh, we, other th- the other thing we learn is that God is actually relational, eternally a relational within himself. And this shows up in the way that he creates humanity. You know, it's interesting, the, the distinctions of the, the Godhead. You know, we know that Jesus, in John 3.16, that Jesus was sent into the world by God. And so in that sense, he was subordinate to God but completely equal in essence. Um, We know, I think in John 14, that uh, the Father, God the Father, and Jesus, God the Son, send God the Holy Spirit into the world, and we have the Spirit uh, within us as followers of Jesus. And so the Spirit is subordinate to the Father and the Son, but completely equal. In essence, every member of the Trinity is God, fully God, and yet they're distinct. So what does this mean? So God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, immediately, the author says, here's one thing it means. He goes on and says, so, this is why, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. In essence, God is saying is, although there may be some similarities between animals and humans, humans are not animals. They have been created over animals, in the likeness of God, to rule over the earth. And men and women to co-rule together as male and female. So we see that we're different than the animals because we are created to rule, but how does this play out in, well, our sexuality? Well, that's where the author begins to go next, and he says this. So God created mankind in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You know, it's interesting. In, in Hebrew, the word mankind, that we translate mankind, is actually a singular noun. So it's better translated, actually, so God created man, singular. And then the author does something strange. In the image of God, he created them. We go from singular to plural, and he did this the verse earlier, didn't he? So God, singular, created, said, let us make man in our image. And so there's this this relation between how God is going to create humanity, one essence, just as God is one essence, and yet God is distinct in three persons as he creates humanity, one essence, one man, and yet two sexes, male and female. And I think this is significant in what it means for us to be the image bearers of God. That although we are one humanity as men and women, that we are distinct. And so we see both in God and humanity who have been made in his image that there is this sameness yet otherness in both. And I think as we live out our sexuality and the sexuality of others, the implications of this is that to honor God And to honor his image bearers, which is others, we ought to honor the difference of what it means to be female and what it means to be male. That we should not, in that sense, blur the lines. That this is actually part of us representing the very image of God. And to blur would be to distort the image of God in us. We are called to co-rule together and represent God on this earth as male and female. Well, God kind of, well, the scriptures in Genesis chapter two kind of works out how this male-female creation took place. And it's kind of interesting. So give me some time and let's kind of go through it. I think you'll find it interesting as well because Genesis one, we kind of like, he just did it. How did he do it? What is it? Why? How did it all work out? And I think it relates to this idea of sameness yet otherness that we see in Genesis one. So Flip the page over to Genesis chapter two, verse 18, and it says this. The Lord God said, and this is him, kind of the, how, how did this male-female thing happen? The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So God has created man, not yet the woman, and God looks at the man and says, something's not good. And this is interesting. Because of all creation, this is the first and only time God says something's not good. And women like to point out that it's after he created the man. Men, I don't have an answer for that. I think we just got to suck it up, okay? So this is, this is reality. He says it's not good. But the question is, what about the man was not good? And the author tells us something, right? He says it's not good because the man is alone. He's by himself. And what did we learn about God, the triune God? He is eternally in what? In relationship with himself. So it's not good for the man to be alone because the man alone actually doesn't represent the likeness or image of God. He falls short. He can't have relationship within himself. He's only one being. Now, God could have fixed this by simply creating another man, but it would have missed out on the image of God, which is not only relational, but there's this one essence with distinction. And so God does 
something a little bit different. He says, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. And this is misunderstood all the time because then God creates the woman and the woman's referred to as a helper. And we often think of helpers as like someone who's a servant or a slave. And so like the woman is supposed to serve the man. Not true at all. We are co-rulers together of the earth and we are of one essence, equal in value. What does the author mean when he gets to helper? Let me ask this question. When is it that you need help? I'll tell you when I need help. A few years ago, I was doing some drywall, and I'm a pretty strong guy. I know you guys don't think that, but I'm a pretty strong guy. And so I'm hanging ceiling drywall, which is like 12-foot sheets of drywall. And I told you I'm a pretty strong guy, but I could not do it on my own. And some of you probably can, whatever. But I couldn't, right? <laughs> so in that moment, here's the deal. As much as a, as a guy, I don't want to admit it, I was insufficient, I couldn't do it. No matter how hard I tried, I needed help. And this is what I think the author's getting at. He's saying, not only does the man need someone who can be in relationship with him, but he is insufficient in himself to fully represent the image of God. So they start looking for someone. And we're told a few verses later, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found, right? They're like, all the animals, yeah, you don't work. Dog, man's best friend, not good enough, right? It just, no one was found. But then this happens. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. Now this it's a little weird, right? Like, took out a rib. What does this mean? Well, in Hebrew, the word we translate as rib is the word selah or selah. It's never translated as rib anywhere else in Scripture, okay? Just so you know. Only here. So what does this Hebrew word mean? Literally, it means the side of. And often, you know, of the tabernacle or, the, you know, it would refer to the sacred side of. So in essence, what God does, he puts the man to sleep and he takes from the very essence of the man, the side of the man, and he creates something new of the same essence, but distinct. In fact, when the man wakes up, he expresses both of those ideas in his response. This is what Adam, the man said. He said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. In essence, he says, whoa, she's like me 2.0, but she is not like me at all, right? And men, if you're married, you know that, right? We're just not the same. We're just not the same, but we're the same, right? Uh, in essence, we are humanity, equal, co-ruling together. And yet, man, you are you are a woman. I'm, you are something different. You're like opposite to me, but of me. And then the author says, and this is interesting, he ties it all together. He says, that is why. He says, here's, here's the deal. This is like, they're one. They just became two. And then he says this, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. He brings us to the point of marriage. So in essence, what happens in creation is they were of one essence, they became two, and in marriage, they become one again. And in marriage, you do not lose your separateness or your distinctness, but you live into that reality of what God created us as one being in a marriage 
relationship. It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, just for those of you that are single, I want to tell you, you are not missing anything. I uh, shouldn't say it that way. It's not that you're missing something, that you're not living into what it means to be human by being single. In fact, uh, if you're single, that's a God-honoring way to live. And the kingdom of God has so much space for single people. In fact, later on, thousands of years later, the apostle Paul would come along and he'd talk about marriage. He says, actually, there's this mystery to marriage that hasn't been seen throughout history. Marriage, this oneness, it's actually a picture of Jesus and the church. And this oneness that happens for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, the oneness that happens with us and God because of Jesus. And so if you're single, it's not that you're missing, you know, you're, you're missing it if you're not married. But the picture of marriage was this picture of oneness from the two again, which is why there's this desire for marriage. And uh, it, it, it shows up in uh, the way that we've been created as male and female. The other thing I want to say about marriage really quickly is that uh, this uh, sameness yet distinctness is important in marriage. And that's why marriage all throughout scripture is between one man and one woman, one male and one female, not two males or two females. Because marriage is this picture, again, of representing God, which is essence one, but distinctness coming together in perfect relationship, just like God is in perfect relationship within himself. So what we see both in God and humanity who have been made in his image, there is this sameness and yet this otherness as it relates to how we have been made in the very image of God. And it's very good. Now, a couple questions that might come up. One is, okay, we know there's two sexes, but are there not many genders? And does scripture allow space for someone's gender to be different from their sex? Now, maybe this question confuses you because you're like, sexes and genders, they're different, they're the same. Um, Scripture, interestingly, always keeps gender and sex, those two words, uh, related. Um, But in our culture, we've disconnected them a little bit. And so let me define for you, I think this is going to be helpful for our discussion, uh, the difference between sex and gender as our culture has come to understand them. Uh, Sex, and this is taken from uh, from Preston Sprinkle, uh, but sex refers to someone's biological makeup, meaning the physical elements of their body, right? The chromosomes you were born with, uh, the physical organs that you had at birth. That is the sex that you were at birth. So how is gender different? Well, gender refers to your internal sense of self, the way you express yourself or cultural expectations for what it means to be man or woman. So sex is the the physical, biological uh, things you were given, you didn't have a choice over. Gender, on the other hand, is the way that you express yourself and sometimes the way you uh, internally feel about yourself. Um, And sometimes, and uh, we talked about this earlier, sometimes uh, some of us experience incongruence or a disharmony between what our physical bodies are, our sexed bodies, and the gender that we feel we're most comfortable in. And I just want to say again to those of you that uh, struggle with this, with gender dysphoria, um, with gender confusion, and you feel like you're a man in a woman's body or a woman in a man's body, uh, I want to acknowledge that is an extremely difficult journey, uh, path to journey. And uh, I can't imagine how difficult um, and isolated you have felt 
And I just want to reaffirm, if that is a struggle for you, if you feel that dissonance, that your heavenly Father loves you and there is room in the kingdom of God for you to struggle with that. We all come. We all come into the kingdom struggling. We struggle with different things, but there is room for you to struggle uh, with that in the kingdom. Though, as we have seen and are going to see, God has designed us a certain way. That doesn't take away your struggle. And we're going to talk more about that next week. So I want to invite you, please do come back next week as you struggle uh, through that that tension and that incongruence in your uh, own life. So what does Scripture say? The question was, and this is going to be technical and not very heartfelt, we're just going to look at Scripture, Um, but what does Scripture say as it relates to, is there room for many different variations of gender, of expression of who you are? Well, uh, a couple passages I want to bring up. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, um, this was in the law, the Old Testament law. Uh, the law prohibited uh, men from cross-dressing as women or women cross-dressing as men. And so there was kind of this negative uh, verbiage used of men and women that dressed up as the opposite gender or opposite sex. And so it wasn't looked well upon um, Maybe you wonder, well, that was the Old Covenant and lots of things have changed from the Old Covenant to you know, the New Testament and Christ. Have things changed? Um, well, Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 is a section where Jesus talks about marriage, but he goes back all the way to Genesis chapter 1 and he quotes it like word for word. And he talks about male and female and marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And he, he uh, reaffirms the two sexes. And he doesn't say, hey, there's been some... Uh, growing expansion of our understanding of what it means. Um, He continues to reiterate and reaffirm that. Um, A number of years later, 20, 30 years later after Jesus, the Apostle Paul comes along in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. And the Apostle Paul uses this word in Greek, and I'll butcher it, but um, most of you don't know Greeks, you don't know that I butcher it. Uh, Malako or malakos. And uh, scholars agree that this word identified uh, men who played the female role in a male-to-male sexual relationship. So if there was a homosexual male relationship, one of the males would play the female part in that sexual uh, relationship. And uh, Paul says, well, he speaks of it in negative terms. The, the word malico or malicos, uh, directly translated into English is the word effeminate or soft. Um, but it, it refers to this person who would play the female role, kind of cross-gender lines. And uh, specifically, it means that. It can also kind of be a general statement for uh, men that, um, or women that um, confuse gender uh, uh, boundaries and so on. And so the Apostle Paul speaks negatively uh, about that again. And then later in, first, uh, or in Romans chapter 1, 26 and 27, the Apostle Paul talks about uh, same-sex relationships between two men or two women. And again, he speaks of it in a negative sense, saying again that this doesn't line up with creation, that God made them male and female. And yes, there's this uh, uh, one essence piece that we are of the same, but there's this distinction of male and female. And it, we don't want to, uh, according to Scripture, cross those boundaries or blur those lines. And so that's what Scripture speaks to on the, on the negative side. Maybe uh, some of you have the question, but aren't there some places in Scripture that it speaks positively or it affirms 
uh, this idea of binary gender, uh, like a binary uh, gender queer, um, you know, neither male nor female uh, affirmation of, of expressing your gender. Um, well, there's three areas I want to look at that have traditionally or sometimes been seen as affirming and talk about those just so you have an understanding. Uh, there's eunuchs, there's angels, and then there's Galatians 3.28. And I'll deal with these quickly uh, separately. For, regarding eunuchs, Matthew chapter 19, 12, Jesus says this. He says, For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by others, and then there are those who cho- uh, choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, those that would say, hey, this is affirming uh, um, genderqueer or a, a different kind of expression uh, other than male or female, um, they would say, well, eunuchs didn't really fit into the male or female category um, because they were, well, males who didn't have the ability to reproduce. In Jewish thought, what made you a man, part of that, a big part of it, was your ability to reproduce. And if that part of your body had been damaged or uh, didn't come out uh, quite functioning right, um, that you weren't really a male. So there's kind of this other gender that's not male or female. Um, is Jesus affirming that? I don't think so. Um, in essence, Jesus is saying there's eunuchs who were male, just don't have the ability to reproduce. And some of them, he says, were born that way. It means their organs weren't working right. But then he says, some of them were made that way. They were castrated, right? There were males that just, you know, someone did this thing to them. But then he says, and some of them choose to live this way. And this is important because this is what gets to what Jesus is getting at. See, this whole, the context of this passage is he's just talked about marriage, And then he talks about eunuchs. And he says some choose. Some were made that way. Some were uh, by others. Some were born. But some choose to live as eunuchs, which in essence means they choose to live a single life. Eunuchs could not get married. No one would marry them. And they were kind of at the bottom of the social ladder. And in essence, what Jesus is saying to that culture, he's saying, listen, some of you think that maybe there's not room for you in the kingdom, There's room for you. And he's lifting up the importance of humanity outside of those who are simply married. Singleness is a viable option, an important option for those who live in the kingdom. Secondly, uh, angels. What about angels? Uh, In Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, Jesus says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And those that say, hey, this is affirming, uh, they would say, well, angels are sexless beings, and if we're going to be like the angels in heaven, then when we get to heaven, we're going to be sexless beings, and if the kingdom starts now, we should remove all sex and gender already to kind of live into this idea already. Is that what Jesus is getting at? Again, I think that would be a misunderstanding in in my view. Um, Just because there's not marriage in heaven doesn't mean that there's no uh, sex or sex bodies in heaven, right? That male and female cease to exist in heaven. And uh, if we go to the angels' argument, um, all throughout Scripture, whenever angels show up, they always show up as males. And I think it would be a great error to think that when we all get to heaven, we're all going to be males. And so I think that's missing it uh, as well. And so I think what Jesus is getting at here is not that uh, gender or sex difference is being erased in the kingdom of God in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, The third area, 
uh, is Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. And this is a verse uh, the Apostle Paul wrote. And he says this. He says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, uh, and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, those that are affirming, saying, hey, we need to uh, remove all sexual boundaries, are saying, hey, in the kingdom, male and female have been erased. The question we have to ask is, what is Paul trying to erase in this passage? Um, obviously, we still know there's Jew and Gentiles in the world. We know there's some, some people in the world, unfortunately, that are still slaves, and some that are free. So those haven't actually been erased. Um, and when it comes to male and female, we know biologically speaking, there's still males born that way and females born that way. So what is Paul saying? Hey, this has been erased. I think what Paul is getting at is all the barriers that used to keep us from, uh, from God, all of those barriers have been erased in Jesus. You know, in the old days, Jews had a leg up on Gentiles. No, not anymore. Before God, we all come to him through Jesus. No one has a leg up or a leg down. Now, when it comes to slave or free, you know, in the past, those who were wealthy or had a better uh, situation socially or economically, they had a leg up. And Paul's saying, no, in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're slave or free. We all come before God the same through Jesus. And as it relates to gender or sex, um, in, in the ancient world, often women were devalued, valued way lower than men, and men had a leg up. And Jesus is saying, no, no one has a leg up, not men over women. We all come to God the same through Christ. What he's erasing are the barriers that keep us from God or the things that used to keep us from God, that we are one in the person of Jesus rather than the uh, removal of sex difference. In fact, um, nowhere else does Paul remove sex difference or even gender distinctions. In fact, if you read the other 12 letters of Paul, sometimes he goes so strongly on sex and gender difference that it makes us all uncomfortable, okay? So just so you know, Paul doesn't uh, go down that pathway. So we have eunuchs, we have angels, and we have uh, Galatians 3.28. So I think in summary, I'd like to just say both in God and humanity, Made in his image, there is sameness and there is otherness. And it's part of what it means to be, uh, to together as male and female, represent the very image of God together. And it is very good. The distinction of male and female is very good. One thing I want to, I, I think we need to be careful of um, as followers of Jesus, I think as people in general is that we don't confuse biblical mandates for gender and cult, uh, uh, cultural stereotypes. That we don't box in, this is what it means to be female, or this is what it means to be male, but it's a cultural stereotype rather than uh, a mandate from God uh, and from his word. Because I think when we do that, we can put people, uh, we create these boxes, people that don't fit into them, it can cause all kinds of gender dysphoria and confusion for them because we've kind of narrowed it down to something that God did not narrow it down to. And let me give you some examples. It is not male to love the color blue, to love trucks, lift heavy things, and play full contact sports. Doesn't make you a male. And it is not female to love the color pink, love playing with dolls, and to be highly emotional. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I said it. To be highly emotional. And, and the reality is, if you're a male 
and you're a, a little bit artistic and you don't like lifting heavy things, you like imagination and you kind of like the color pink, it's a color. It doesn't change you from being what God created you as a male. And likewise, if you're a female and you're like, I like full contact sports and lifting heavy things and I don't really like chick flicks, it doesn't mean that you're not a female. And I think sometimes we can box these in and it creates all kinds of confusion and we have to be careful not to box it in further than how the Bible and God's word boxes us in. You know, a couple examples of the variance and openness of living out our manhood and our women, womanhood uh, that scripture gives. Here's a few examples. David, King David, uh, king of Israel, he was often kind of considered soft. He cried a lot. Uh, he played a harp, which is kind of soft. And uh, uh, he, he, he was quite emotional. You read the Psalms, there's high emotion. Didn't mean that he wasn't a male. Uh, he was also a warrior. Uh, he lived out his manhood in all of those ways. Um, we are introduced in Exodus 31 to two guys, Bezalel and Aholiab. Two guys, you can just pass through in scripture, but they were uh, commissioned to build the tabernacle. And we're to told they were really great stone cutters, which is like, ooh, that's manly, right? Like cutting stone and moving heavy rock. But we're also told that they sewed fine linen garments. So were they acting in their male maleness when they were you know, cutting stone and then acting like females when they were sewing? No, they lived out their manhood in both. And scripture allowed them to live it out in both. The last one I want to give is a, a woman, Deborah. Uh, Deborah was uh, a judge of Israel. She was the leader. She became the leader of the army of Israel, this great warrior. And yet, even in her womanhood, she lived out this life of being a great warrior. It didn't change that she was a woman. In fact, there's another woman I didn't put up here, but um, it's the woman all of you ladies love to hate. Uh, it's the Proverbs 31 woman, because she's like the superwoman that does everything perfect. Um, no one can, you know, live up to. But we're told of her that she would care for her children and make food for them, but she would also work in the vineyards as a farmer. And she would sell land and buy land. She was a businesswoman. It wasn't like she was living as a woman in one sense and then at the other times living as a man. No, the scripture, God allowed uh, women to live out their womanhood in both. And so I think we, there are some cultural nuances to what it means to be male and female. I think we have to wrestle with those, but I think we have to be careful not to box it too tightly. That does not represent scripture itself. So in summary, both in God and humanity, made in his image, there is sameness, essence, oneness, and yet otherness, distinction. And as it relates to humanity, there is male and female, and it is good, very good. And so what I want to leave with you is kind of a question for you to wrestle with. As you look at yourself, your body, your physical body, your sexed physical body, can you agree with God who made you that it's good, that it's very good? You know, the psalmist says, I praise you, God, because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'll tell you what, I think for many of us, we struggle to agree with the psalmist, and we struggle to agree with God. And I know for me, there's been a great struggle in my life in the way that God made me, the physical attributes he gave me. And so for some of us, we're mad at God because, God, why couldn't you have made me taller? God, why couldn't you have made me shorter? 
God, why couldn't you have made me with a faster metabolism? God, why couldn't you have made me with a slower metabolism? God, why couldn't you give me a different nose? Why couldn't you have made my hair different? And we look at God and we say, God, why couldn't you? And we have a hard time agreeing with God. God, the way you made me is good. And that doesn't compare to the struggle some of you face as it relates to your sexed body. And this is a big ask to agree with God in the way he made you, in the sex body he gave you. God, you made me good. And I praise you because of the way you made me. So this week, as you consider you, can you agree with God that as who you've been made in humanity, in his image, that it's very good? In closing, I want to pray a prayer over you. And this was a prayer that was prayed over you already, but I'm going to pray it again because it's so significant. So I want to invite you to stand. Close your eyes and allow these words to wash over you and sink into your soul. I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, the very core of who you are, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, established, rooted in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses our knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. You've been epically made. Go in that truth. You're dismissed. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.